So you should have a copy of Lesson 7 that starts on page 30. We did part of that last week, so we're going to continue it today. Some of you may have brought yours from last week, but we have additional copies at the table. All right, let me make some announcements. When Pastor Larry made the announcements in first hour, my wife nudged me when he got to chronological order of events tomorrow evening. He skipped that the group that she leads, which is ladies, women's heart-to-heart. So I'm reminding you, ladies, that heart-to-heart meets tomorrow at 7 o'clock. They're going through the Sermon on the Mount, so please come if you're able. We have two more sessions after today of Truth for Life. So we have today two more, so three total. There is no second hour No Sunday School, No Discovering God in two weeks. That's Easter. So on Easter, we'll just have the worship service at 10.30, so a different time, and no no second hour. And then in four weeks, four weeks from today, on April the 23rd, we'll start our next Newcomer's Orientation. And the Newcomer's Orientation is for those who have been coming around, you're looking for a church, you're trying to figure out, what church the Lord wants you to be a a part of, and this aids you in making that decision. It doesn't obligate you to anything, but it does aid you, so it gives you information about CBC. I take four weeks starting that day, so on April the 23rd, and then uh, the next three, each of the next three weeks during our second hour, we go through a booklet of material that tells you a bit about our history, what we believe, why the church is structured as, as it is. Uh, what we hope to accomplish in the future, and so on. So you should, by the time you get finished with that, you have, you're fully informed about who we are, and then you can make that informed uh, decision. So if you've never taken the newcomer's orientation, then I encourage you to do that starting on April the 23rd. This lesson, le- uh, it's lesson number seven. This is our eighth session, but it's the seventh lesson. And as you see on page 30... This one is about anthropology and hamartiology. And anthropology is the study of humanity, and hamartiology is the study of of sin. And those often go together because since humanity is sinful, then it's it's now part of our nature. As we saw last week, it hasn't always been part of human nature. Humanity was created without a sin nature, but we acquired that sin nature because of the first sin. Uh, And everyone then is affected by the taint of original sin, all of us. And so we are sinful, but we are also uh, wonderful. And I say that humanity is actually both marvelous and depraved. Humanity is wonderful. Amazing, astonishing, marvelous, and yet at the same time, with all that good stuff, we are, the Bible teaches, depraved. And that's why at the top of page 30, I call this, after the colon, Jekyll and Hyde. And last week, we saw that there is Dr. Jekyll uh, in all of us that are very respectable. We can uh, and do do good things uh, for our families and for our neighbors and for society and, and so on. Uh, but then there is the, the Mr. Hyde 
in all of us as well. And every person the Bible teaches is, is both of those. So when we say that we are marvelous, when I say that we're marvelous, astonishing, amazing, I'm talking about the fact that the Bible teaches that humanity alone among God's cre creatures is made in the image of God. So we have the capacity to reflect God back to, to God. We are God-like in that sense. We are the only creatures among God's creatures who, who have the capacity to share some of his attributes, his characteristics. So when theologians put together the character qualities of God, they always have to make two categories. Uh, and they call those categories by different names. Uh, sometimes they are called the incommunicable attributes of God. And then the other category is the communicable attributes of God. Uh, sometimes they're just called the attributes of God's uh, greatness and of his goodness. But the reason that you have to have two categories, separate categories, with different characteristics in them, is because there are some things that belong to God alone. And if he were not God, if he, if he did not have them, he would not be God. So these are things like omniscience knows everything. Omnipotence has all power. Sovereignty has all authority. That's what sovereignty is. So God doesn't have anyone to report to or ask for permission to do what he, what he does. Eternality is something that belongs to God alone. We are going to live eternally, but we had a beginning. But God's never had a beginning or an end. It's he is eternal within himself, in his being. So you've got to have this category of stuff that just belongs to God. And it's sometimes called his greatness, as I said, or incommunicable. Now, the reason it's called incommunicable is because God can't communicate, share those with anybody else. They are his alone. So then you have the other category, though, of God. Of, of God's communicable attributes, his attributes of goodness as opposed to his attributes of his greatness. And the difference there is that these are things like grace and love and faithfulness and righteousness and justice. And these are all things that God can and does share with his image bearers. So we have the capacity than to image God. We have the capacity to act like God in our thinking, in our speaking, and in our, in our behavior as we emulate those character qualities of God that are in the category of his communicable or his attributes of his, of his goodness. But only humanity can do that. So humanity is made by God to be amazing, to be astonishing, to be marvelous. But then sin comes along, and so I say it's the other thing. Humanity is both marvelous and depraved. And depravity refers to our, our sinfulness. And we are, the Bible teaches, totally sinful. So there's Dr. Jekyll and there's, and there's Mr. Hyde. And you have that in every human being, you have both of those. You have both of them. And so we are depraved. Totally sinful. Now, what do we mean when we say total depravity? What total depravity is not, it does not mean 
that we commit every sin. You're totally depraved, and every possible sin, at one point or another, if you live long enough, you'll commit it. We don't all commit every possible sin, thankfully. Uh, it also does not mean that we are as bad as we could be, even in the sins we do commit, even in the propensities that we have, the tendencies that each of us has toward evil. We don't do, we don't normally do all of those to their fullest extent. We're not as bad as we could be. And total depravity also does not mean that we never do anything relatively good. Relatively good. Now that relatively piece is important. Because the Bible says there is none good, no, not, not one. So how can I then say, well, okay, there's a little bit of good. Well, I'm qualifying it with the relatively part. You see, we never do anything absolutely good outside of Christ in our natural state as sons and daughters of Adam with our sin nature. It means that even when I do a good deed, I don't do it for the right reason. Outside of Christ, I never do anything for the glory of God. When in fact, that was the very reason I was made was to do everything for the glory of God. So every breath I take, every word I speak, every act I perform is supposed to be to the pleasure, to the honor, to the glory of God. So if I, if I help an elderly person across the street, I've done a good thing. We can do civic good duties, but we don't ever, outside of Christ, do them for absolute good namely doing the right thing for the right reason. So what do we mean then that total depravity is? It's not those things. It's not I commit every sin. It's not as bad as I, I'm as bad as I could be. It's not that I never do anything relatively good. What total depravity means is my whole being, my entire person has been affected by sin. Total depravity. Now, what's my total person? If you have taken Master Plan for Life, you know the answer to all these things if you took Master Plan for Life. I, I should say, if you took Master Plan for Life and you listened, <laughs> yeah, which is <laughs> quite a qualifier, but we go over this stuff and we will be doing that again this fall, so I offer it to, for your consideration in, uh, in our midweek, but we explain there that a person has the, capa the, the capacities, the faculties of personhood are three. Intellect, uh, choice, and feeling. Mind, will, emotion. And each of those faculties of personhood, the entire person, is affected by sin. The way we think, the stuff we do, and even our affections are disordered, sinfully. I'm not going to beat on this, but just so. Therefore, you should not have, in your way of thinking, you should not have emotions as just this kind of separate category that just are. And, and many people think that. Uh, that, look, I can't control my emotions. I mean, they just are what they are. 
and, and, and emotions are, are part of who we are. We're, we're a total package. But they have also, our emotions, our affections, have been affected by, uh, by sinfulness as well. So that's what we mean by total depravity. The way we think, what we choose, and uh, how we feel, and uh, how our affections are manifested. So we left off on page 33, I think it was. No, 32. Page 32. And down, two-thirds of the way down, a call to discernment. So what is it, Jekyll or Hyde then? And this is something that I wrote on our blog a few months ago. The good news is none of you would know that. <laughs> I, I have no way of knowing if anybody reads the blog. Okay, So if you do read the blog, then just... You know, there are indicators where you can indicate, I read it. Even if you indicate, I didn't like it, hit dislike. Hit a thumbs down. That just tells me somebody read it, okay? So if you do read the blog, just indicate that you read the blog, up or down. But I wrote this call to discernment blog a few months ago, and I said there, in my role as pastor, it is co it's a common occurrence for someone to catch me in the hallway and ask about an author or other Christian leader with, hey, is he or she good? And it's always the case that they're looking for a quick thumbs up or a thumbs down. And therefore, that's why they can expect I can give an answer simply as we're passing by. But I say, unless the person in question is named Beelzebub, or Lucifer, or Joel Osteen, <laughs> all the same, by the way, but on the good side, I should have said, or, or Jesus. But outside of that, then I can't just give this. The answer is not clear cut for, for most people. There are very few people, very few of us, any of us that aren't tainted in some way. And we've got something wrong intellectually. We do something wrong. We don't do it right. Now, that doesn't mean we discard, as I'm going to say later on, the value of what that person has to offer. But it just means there are usually qualifiers with everybody. And thus, it's you know, pure evil or pure good, as in the devil or Christ. And the reason has to do with these two truths that the Bible teaches that have to be taken into account when we evaluate any proposition or person. So the first of those is what we've been talking about here, total depravity. Scripture teaches that every human being is totally sinful. It's what theologians call total depravity. Total depravity means that sin has penetrated and affected the whole of our being. Specifically, it affects body, mind, will, and heart, the control center of the human personality. Jeremiah says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can, who can understand it? phrase total depravity leads some to believe that outside of Christ, people are completely evil, but total depravity, as I've said, does not mean that the unsaved person has no disposition to do right, that they never do any good, that they never and that they commit every possible sin, or that they're as evil as they could be. 
And those of us who are regenerate, those of us who have been given spiritual life, still battle the effects of depravity on us, and we will until glory, until we die or the Lord returns and takes us home and gives us new bodies and we're made completely new. But while Christians have the Holy Spirit to overcome sinful impulses, how are those without the Spirit restrained? See, and, and this next part then is important because if you come to a session like this and you hear a guy like me say, hey, look, humanity is, is marvelous and depraved. So we've got all this good stuff and then we've got this bad stuff. If you're not careful, you could come away just going, well, everybody's some good and everybody's some bad. And if you do that, you would miss it. Because when the Bible talks about humanity after the fall, it's really bad. Emphasis on the bad. Okay? Total depravity. The reason that God himself had to come to earth to remedy sin is because we're that bad. If we weren't that bad, then God could have had a different remedy. If we had the capacity to do what's right in the absolute sense, do the right thing for the right reason, if we had the capacity to do that, then God could have given a list of rules and said, here, keep these. Because you have the ability to keep them. Now, you're sitting there thinking, hey, wait a minute, he gave a list of rules. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And who kept them? And you think about that. Um, some of you are in my midweek class, and you heard me say a few weeks ago, uh, I can't remember what the context was that I brought it up, but I probably shouldn't have said it the way I did. Now I'm going to repeat my mistake by saying it again. Okay, But... I at least have somebody who reads my blog. I know this because every time I touch on the issue of God's sovereignty and his grace and salvation, meaning if God is not the one who changes you, you ain't going to be changed. And it's not you who initiates that, it's God. So I say, so I, you know, I said that in my blog a few times. Every time I even allude to that, that people are totally sinful and therefore can't change themselves, God has to do it, you're spiritually dead, you come into the world as sinful, right? Every time I do that, I get some anonymous troll <laughs> who writes to me. And they write to me under different names and they just can't stand this idea that God's the one who's in control of them that I don't get to be in, in control of it. And so, you know, a, a recent one, I had a line in there that said something like, you know, we all come into the world uh, fully sinful. And so the person writes, now don't you mean, uh, no, just stop right there. <laughs> what I said is what I meant, okay? Don't, don't give me don't you mean. But anyway, all right, I feel better. I'll keep moving. Don't you mean we have the capacity for evil? And I wrote back and said, no. I mean, we're full. Now think about what this person is thinking. That we have, the, we have the capacity for evil or we have the capacity for, right? Where's a little good, there's a little bad. And, we, and everybody makes their choices. And everybody has to live with the consequences of their choices. And this is the way it is. 
Now that is every single man-made religion that's ever existed. Believe that. That is not the gospel of God's grace. You wouldn't need God's grace if you had the capacity. I don't mean that we have the capacity for evil and we have the capacity for I don't mean that. No, I mean that we're born fully sinful. And we never do anything for absolute good. And that's why it requires such a radical remedy to have God himself come and to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So it's not, you know, there's some good in us and there's some bad in us. All bad, but we're still able to do relative good. How do you explain that? And that's this next thing, common grace. Apart from the grace of God, the common grace of God, given to, thus the name common, given to all humanity, apart from that, okay, now it's, it's much uglier than we experience now. If you think this world is bad, you ain't seen nothing apart from the common restraining grace of God. And theologians have thought about this for centuries and I think helpfully identified some of the ways in which, uh, in which God in his common grace restrains the effects of evil holds it back, keeps it from being as bad as it could be. One of those, you know, I don't want to start a riot here, but one of those is government. Really, I mean, so read some theologians, that's what they tell you, and they're right, by the way. Uh, this past Friday in my blog, it's titled, God is an Institutionalist. And God established the institution of marriage and family, for example. He did that. God instituted the, uh, the, gave us the institution of the church. So when people say, I don't believe in man-made religion or organized religion and all of that. No, God's the one who gave us the, the church. It was his idea. And I say, thirdly, God gave us government. And one of the things government does is restrain the effects of evil. So guys, you don't want to be in the camp of overthrowing the government. Because you don't want to live in a world that doesn't have that restraint. Now, you want the, be the best government you can get. I get all of that. Vote for the best people you can. But you don't want to be an anarchist. You don't want to be an insurrectionist. You don't want to be any of that. And you don't want to be cheering those people on from a Christian standpoint. I believe, not everybody believes in a pre-tribulation rapture. Not everybody believes that the rapture of the church will happen prior to the, the coming tribulation. Everybody who believes the Bible believes in a rapture. You have to believe in a rapture because the Bible says we're going to be caught away. And if you had a Latin version, it would actually say, we'll be, this is what it will say, we will be raptured. So the Bible says there's going to be a rapture. The question is when. My understanding is it's going to be before the seven-year tribulation. And that means that those who belong to Christ will be removed from the earth. Well, guess what? One of the common grace restraints of God is the presence of Christians in the world. With the Holy Spirit indwelling us, that has good effects on the world. 
Well, when that's gone, take a look at what the Bible teaches about conditions on earth after that. It all goes south, to put it mildly. Okay? <laughs> Thank you, Wes. <laughs> so, government is, is one. Uh, the presence of Christians in the world has common good effects in God's world that restrain the effects of evil. And then there are just societal mores. That's just what a society considers good and what it considers bad. And even sinful people understand natural law, that there are certain things that are right and there are certain things that are, that are wrong. Now, sinful people have the capacity to chip away at those mores. And we live in a time where we've been chipping and chipping and chipping some more. So things that are, are clear by natural law now are, have become distorted in people's minds. And so some of the really weird stuff you see going on in our society is because of that. And because common grace... So I've explained the common part. Everybody benefits from it. And it restrains the effects of evil, but it is grace. And you, you guys remember, if you took master plan for life, you would remember that grace is undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor from God. So that means God doesn't have to give it. Grace is at God's discretion always. God, if God's required to give something, it's not grace. He graciously bestows it, which means he can do what? He can take it away. He can remove those restraints. That's what he did with a guy like Pharaoh. He removed the restraints from Pharaoh's heart. And thus, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Because he had no restraints any longer on him. You guys have heard the phrase, this is a wise man said this, I think it was Lord Acton, I think, who said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Why would that be? Why would that always be the case? Because the person takes a sinful heart to it with no restraints on it. But God can lift that. And you see it in episodes like, like Pharaoh, I believe we're going to see it in the future, and I believe we'll be gone, good. But with the, the Antichrist in the, in the future, that that will happen then. Uh, you know, you guys remember that in the city of Detroit, remember how Devil's Night was in the city of Detroit for a number of years? Yeah, a bunch, and people were afraid to go out because there was just all these, you know, and so if you, you know, our church is in Trenton. If you live in, in Trenton here, Devil's Night was one thing. If you were in Detroit, Devil's Night was another thing during those years. Now, how, how are you going to look at that? Are you going to look at that and say, man, those people in Detroit are really sinful. And those people in Trenton apparently are not so sinful. At least not like those guys. You got, all right, so how, how biblically, this is a class on truth for life. So how do we now take this truth and apply it to real life stuff like that? How do you, how do you look at that? 
How do you look at those people in Detroit and what they're doing versus people in your neighborhood who are not doing that? Is it because they're better people? Now, if you're having to think very long about that, take Master Plan for Life. <laughs> okay. Hey, listen. We ain't no better. We might be better off. What's happening is the restraints of order and law and order, when those break down, it doesn't matter where you are or who you are. The heart of man will be manifest. I had a friend who, when January 6th happened, he, he was shocked. He was shocked at the people who carried that out. And he's a good guy. He's a biblically knowledgeable guy. But he just didn't think our people did that. Ooh. And I do think, for many of us, we don't think carefully enough about this two-tiered kind of system we have in mind where there's the good people and there's the other people. We're all bad. We're all depraved. It's common grace that restrains depravity. And when God removes those restraints from any neighborhood, from any community, people have the exact same heart inside. And they'll do the exact same kinds of stuff. So what do, we, what do we do? Common grace. It's common in that it affects all people, saved and unsaved alike. Common grace usually operates through secondary causation, the gospel, church, home, state, school, and the like. Wherever truth is propagated, by whatever means, for whatever motives, restraint of the progress of sin and the performance of civic good will ensue. Because of common grace, man retains some idea of what is good, beautiful, true, and upright. Philosophically, one needs to include the depravity of man, the sovereignty of God, and his common grace to explain why unsaved men can rise to such great heights of accomplishment in certain areas and descend to such bestial depths in others. So that means we've got to discriminate in the, in the proper sense of that term. We've got to discern. We have to see the difference. Therefore, evaluation of people in their positions is rarely simple. Non-Christians can and do have genuine and good contributions to make to our discourse and overall flourishing. Now let me just stop, read that again. Non-Christians can and do have genuine and good contributions to make to our discourse and overall flourishing. Now, to what non-Christians... Are there non-Christians to whom that sentence does not apply? Can you think of non-Christians who don't have any genuine or good contributions to make to our discourse or overall flourishing? All right, so I see some nodded heads. I don't want, if it's somebody in here, don't use their name. <laughs> but, okay, who, who, anybody share what you're thinking of? Okay, all right. And why did, why did they do what they did? Those, those are good. They're Pharaoh-like, right? The restraints of common grace removed. Okay. 
So, but unless somebody has had completely had the restraints of common grace removed, like Pharaoh, like Hitler, like Stalin, then does this apply? That they can and do have genuine and good contributions? Would you say that that applies at least to 98% of people? That people made in the image of God can and do make genuine and good contributions. Right, let me fill in a blank for you here. I say non-Christians here. And I'm not saying this category I'm going to give you is all non-Christians. But just for this crowd, fill in Democrats can and do have genuine and good contributions to make to our discourse and overall flourishing. Can a Democrat do that? If his name's not Stalin or Hitler. <laughs> or paying off a porn star. Because, you know, it goes both, right? Right? Can I, can I put something up? But what if, Greg, just to push back a little bit, what if this group of people, because we're being led to the idea that they do, what if they have more harmful things to say? What if their, their input is outweigh the bad, outweighs the good? Should they not be put to the sidelines so that their bad ideas, and, and if they're put to the sidelines, their bad and good ideas would not be reflected in society, but wouldn't we be better if both were not reflected in, in, in order to focus on the people that do have the overall better ideas? No, here's what you'd be better off doing, what I'm trying to tell you here, and that is develop discernment and be able to choose the good from anybody who gives it. And then implement that good. And then reject all the other junk. To put it, to put it another way, and you guys, you guys are able to use this, if you, you can take this and use it at your next family gathering when you're just arguing and, you, and you're losing the argument. See, whenever you're losing the argument, say something your opponent has, doesn't understand. Okay. So say, uh, the genesis of an idea does not determine its veracity. Just say that. Just throw it out. But, you know, break it down. Here's what that, here's what that means. Where the idea came from doesn't determine whether it's true or not. Somebody that's wrong nine out of ten times can be right one out of ten. So I'm not saying, you know, buy all their books. I'm not saying watch all their shows. I'm not saying any of that. I am saying go at every proposition with the idea this might be true or it might not. No matter who said it. Otherwise, you're not going to be a discerning person. You're going to be a person who operates completely by lazy labels. See, labels are lazy. Labels allow me to just say good or bad. That's why a person can say in the hallway, good or bad. And if I'm, I, you know, here's my labels I want to have for them. I want Baptist, okay, pre-trib rapture, Baptist. I mean, I can have my whole list of labels and then check those off. And if you ask me, is that person good? I've got my thing here. I've got my labels. Well, do they fit those? Well, then no, toss them. I just tossed John Calvin, <laughs> you know, one of the greatest theologians that ever lived. You guys heard me say in the first hour, 
our Presbyterian friends. I went to a Presbyterian seminary precisely because I don't believe I need to immerse myself with everybody who agrees with me. And so I'm trying to create a church of people who think about ideas and accept those that conform to God's character and his word and reject those that don't. And sometimes those ideas come from people that you disagree with most of the time. So yeah, the answer is non-Christians can do this. Even Democrats can, can do this. And of course, Christians do as well. But we're all susceptible to muddled thinking, wrong choices, and inordinate feelings, which means our judgments require separating truth from error, right from wrong, good from bad. And the Bible calls this discernment. Spiritual discernment is the divinely given ability to distinguish God's thoughts and ways from all others. It's obtained by a developmental process. Hebrews 5.14 says this, Solid food is for the mature who, by constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So let's learn to discern. In the information warfare of our day, it's imperative we begin to practice the Christian discipline of discernment. And that means at least these things. This is what I just said about the Genesis of an idea does not determine its veracity. That's called the genetic fallacy. You know, there are, there are books on logic, and they all have these logical fallacies that people make. And then they explain what the logical fallacies are, and, they get, and, and they're fantastic. I recommend. Uh, if you want, I've got some on my shelf. Seriously, they're just very helpful. They help you just think through, wow, I do that. I make that mistake. I commit that fallacy. And one of them is the genetic fallacy. It sees the source of an idea as the determinant for its veracity, for its truthfulness. The statement's deemed true or false based on the person who's making the claim. So our dear Pastor Larry, have you ever, have you ever gotten into a, an argument with Pastor Larry? Have, have you ever gotten into a heated argument with Pastor Larry? There's no such thing. Now, an argument, an argument can just be, I'm arguing my case, you're make, arguing your case. It doesn't have to get heated. It doesn't have to be hostile. And so we've had that. He and I have gone back and forth on things. And one, uh, Larry argues as well as anybody as I've ever met. He is, he's a brilliant fellow, but just so humble that he, and, and calm. I mean, that's just the way he is. But he's a brilliant fellow. And if you... If you ever get into a discussion with him, and if you disagree, he's going to do so very reasonably, and he's going to make his case, and, and that's the way he does it. And I don't post on social media, but he does sometimes. And back when we were in the thick of all the political stuff a few years ago and all of that that I'm hoping we're not going to repeat, you know, he was posting some stuff, and he, in the course of doing that, he cited an article from the New York Times. And immediately he had, he had these people who are opposing him, you know, who, you can't cite the New York Times. The New York Times is published by Beelzebub. You can't, you can't, you can't cite the New York Times. They're always wrong. They're the most liberal newspaper in the country. 
Now, I, I won't argue with the most liberal newspaper thing. There is the possibility that they could accidentally speak. Okay, even a blind squirrel. Listen, <laughs> I wrote a blog post on that too. It's got, a, it's, got a, it's got a picture of a squirrel and a clock. And you know the old adage that even a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> That's why the clock was there. And then the squirrel is even a blind squirrel finds an acorn every now and then. Okay? So yeah, there's the possibility, even if it's accidental. I honestly believe it. Absolutely. Oh, hey, listen, he's not going to post it if he didn't look into it. And, you know, you can disagree with him, and he might be fallible, of course. But the point is, you don't do that. You don't, you don't debate someone and then say, you can't bring that in because I don't like those people. You deal with the idea that he brought in. That's the genetic fallacy. We also eschew. Knee-jerk reactions. Labels are the bane of careful thought. It's much easier to simply label an individual or a policy with an epithet than it is to take them and their position seriously and then apply the mental energy required. That's harder. And I've used words there like epithet and eschew to help you in that argument that you're losing with a family member. Throw those out as well. And then thirdly, we see the humanity in our opponents. Those with whom we disagree are not our enemies. They're fellow human beings made in the image of God. With the amazing capacity to reflect the good, the true, and the beautiful, and thereby enhance our lives together. So, if you guys catch me in the hallway... And you say, is he or she good? I'll go sideways on the... <laughs> okay, I'm not giving you up or down. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word to instruct us about who we are and why we struggle as we do with our thoughts and our words and our behavior. You have told us it's because we rebelled against you. And we see the consequences of it in our own hearts. We see the consequences of it in the environment, in the physical world. There is sickness and disease and death. Uh, the, the earth itself convulses as a consequence of its fallen, this fallen world, all because of the curse of the fall. And then we are collectively surrounded by others who are like us. Some don't know, many don't know you, and so they don't have interest in your word. They don't have your Holy Spirit to illumine their reading of your word. And so we are called by you to live side by side with people who have the same nature we had before we came to Christ. And even after coming to you, each of us still struggles with sin. We, we still get it wrong. And so, Lord, help me to see that clearly. Help my brothers and sisters to see that clearly so that we see ourselves with the humble attitude it ought to elicit, but then also so that we see others accurately 
They are fearfully and wonderfully made. They are made in the image of God. They may have something to contribute. Even when they're wrong, help us to treat them with the honor and respect that goes with fellow image bearers. Help us to be courageous as well. Help us to be willing to point out error. To do so in Christian grace. Letting our conversation always be with grace, seasoned with salt, your word tells us. But help us to be courageous and point out error. But help us to represent you well. Represent those attributes of yours that we can indeed reflect. And help us to especially do that when we are at odds with another brother or sister, someone with whom we work, a neighbor, in the back and forth of the marketplace of ideas. We ask you to go with us this week and help us to practice the discernment about which we have talked today. Help us to do it this afternoon and this coming week. Lord, develop it within your people so that in a very trying time that you have called us to minister, and it is that, that we will stand out as light in darkness, that we will show that Christ has transformed our minds and our hearts, our attitudes. He's given us truth, and we reflect that truth in the way we behave and in the way we interact. Go with us this week, we ask you. Grant us safety. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.